Welcome to the Sozo Church Podcast. Our desire is to see every person know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. We hope this message inspires and encourages you today. Enjoy. Well, we've been in this uh, this collection of talks. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. Uh, it's, the topic has been freedom. We've been talking about freedom. You know, the reason why we decided or really we felt like God was leading us in this direction to speak on this topic uh, really is a, a couple different things. One is, um, you know, the, the name of our church, it, it's a unique name, uh, but it's an intentional name. One of the values of our leadership team is that we are intentional. We try our best to be intentional. And so even when we were naming our, our church, we just thought and we prayed about naming it, which, by the way, we do have uh, some people from a church that's going to be launching uh, in Monterey Bay that's here with us today. Where's Pastor Max at? I thought I saw you somewhere over here. Where are you where you at over here? Pastor Max, right over here, and his wife. Can we clap our hands for them? They're here with us today. And I know you guys are thinking through your name, right? You're thinking through that right now, and, 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 and it is really important. You know, when we were naming our children, we were intentional, kind of. Um, my, my grandmother said uh, about Liam, she said, she said, well, when you have this kid, she said, you need to name him a good Irish name. So I looked up Irish names. It was like Flanagan, Hannigan, Shenanigan. It was like, it's weird. But I found Liam, and I was like, that's a good name, you know, and it has a good meaning. Uh, and then Nixon, I basically was, had my arms crossed. We couldn't figure out a name. And my wife said, what are we going to name? And he's, we're about to have this kid. And I looked down at my watch, and it was a Nixon watch. And I was like, Nixon is a great name. And she was like, we're going to name our son after your watch? And I'm like, no, no, no. He's coming right on time. This is perfect timing. <laughs> Whatever. So, but there's something to a name. name names are really important. So, we began to pray about the name of our church, and uh, we really felt like uh, where God was bringing us to was, was this name, Sozo. And it's a Greek New Testament word, or it's inspired by a Greek New Testament word, um, which essentially just means this. It means to save, to heal, to set free, and to make whole. To save, to heal, to set free, and to make whole. It's a lot going on in just that one simple word, but it's very, very powerful. So part of our name, part of our name means to set free. To set free. Um, part of our vision, uh, you've probably seen it written on, on different uh, things, signage and stuff here. Um, but part of our vision is even about freedom. That we want to see every person know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. So freedom is very important to us. We, we deeply desire for every person not just to be free from something, but to be free uh, to be able to live out the purpose of God in their life and the potential of God in their life. God, God doesn't want to just set you free from something, but for something. And so we're passionate about that. We want to do our best to help people find freedom. So that's what this collection has been all about. Um, another thing is this, is that when you look at the ministry of Jesus, you'll see that a large part of his ministry was helping people find freedom. It was something he was very passionate about. Very, very passionate. As a matter of fact, when he kind of had that moment where he went public with his ministry, he said this, uh, quoting the scroll of Isaiah or, or reading the scroll of Isaiah, he said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's the gospel. To preach good news to the poor. That's know God. Help people know God. Uh, to preach good news to the poor, uh, to heal the brokenhearted, and to set the captive free. And it goes on to say a few other things, but Part of what he said his, his anointing and grace and calling was, was to help people find freedom, to set the captive free. Uh, that comes in many different ways when you look into his ministry. He went around, the Bible says, he went around doing good and, and ministering to people and setting people free. Um, not sure where you, where you lie on the, um, on, the, on the whole 
how do I even say this? Like, is there a devil? Are there demons, spiritual type? I don't know where you kind of land on that. There's people in both categories uh, with that. But when you read the scriptures, you see that a large part of Jesus' ministry was actually casting out demons. Whoa, that's a pretty scary phrase right there, right? Especially in, you know, 2018, talking about casting out demons. Like, are we going to have a deliverance service? No, we're not, okay? Not going to do that. That's the church down the street. Go there for that, okay? <laughs> we don't do that. Um, at least not like that. But we do believe that, that there is this activity spiritually that is at work in the world we live in where um, whether or not if you believe in Satan or devil or demons or whatever, we just sense that there is a resistance. Have you ever felt that? There's, there's a resistance. You may not call it a demon or devils or this or that, but there is something that resists and, and fights and wars against us. And, and Jesus, when you look at the Gospels, his ministry was actually going around casting out demons, delivering people from the strongholds of Satan in their life. It's what he did. If you don't believe me, read your Bible. It's in there. It's really, really good stuff. Um, but he, he did this so much in his ministry that part of his reputation was actually that he had the power to cast out demons. And people actually came to him with family members and friends that were oppressed and possessed by demonic spirits. That's a heavy thing. We've just had all this joyous, wonderful worship and stuff, and now I'm like up here talking to you about demons. I get it. That's, that's a little bit different. But let me, let me just share this, this scripture with you. 1 John 3, 8 says this, that the reason the Son of God, that's Jesus appeared. It says the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy not just ideas, not just like some concepts of, of, that, that are working against us, not just some, some resistance that we feel, but, but he appeared on this earth to destroy the devil's work. So, so, so Jesus, Jesus came to actually dismantle, destroy, and stop the work of the enemy in people's lives. If you look at it all throughout his ministry, he did this. Um, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, and I want you, this is a little bit of a heady quote, but just lean into it. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or about demons. It says one is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. In other words, he's saying... There, there's extremes that you can go with this. You can, you can think that there's a devil under every rock. Have you ever met those people? It's like they get a ticket for speeding, and they're like, that's the devil working against me. No, you're not obeying the law, okay? Say like everything's a demon. Everything's a devil. Like those people drive me crazy. I just can't be around them. It's like there's, everything's a demon. Everything's the devil's fault. Everything. I'm like, no, you just didn't. You kept snoozing your alarm clock. That's why you lost your job. That's not the devil's fault. It's your fault, okay? It's a demon under every rock. Then there's the other extreme, these, these, these superstitious, or, or excuse me, there's this other extreme of skepticism where people don't believe there's any spiritual things going on. Uh, there's no demons. There's no devils. There's no sin. There's none of that. It's, it's interesting that people that are skeptical, the same people that are skeptical about demons believe that there are angels guarding them. You ever thought about that? They have like those little guardian angel things in their car. It's like they're watching over me, but there's no demons. There's no, and it's just interesting to me. And I love another quote that C.S. Lewis said. He says, you can give the devil too much or too little attention. In other words, here's what he's trying to say with both those quotes. There is a balance. There's a balance. We, we must believe that there, there is 
a demonic attack in this world on people, all people. Jesus said it like this, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Who is the thief? It's not an idea or concept. It's, it's the devil. It's Satan. It's his demonic works against people trying to destroy their lives. And so we're going to talk for just a little bit today. I'm not going to dig into a bunch of, you know, stuff, you know, proving that there are demons. Believe it or don't believe it. I believe it, but, you know, go for it if you want to do a deep study on that. But what I want to do is I want to share some very practical practical things with you. Um, I'm going to skip on down to this right here. Look at this. I'm going to put this on the screen for a moment. And I thought about this statement because it's a bridge between these last weekend and this weekend. Last weekend, we shared some things that were very much foundational as it relates to freedom. Uh, Those things were were, were this. Let me see if I can remember them. Maybe, Maybe you can help me. Maybe you remember them. The first one was that freedom is not achieved through works. It's received through faith. That is that you, you, don't, you don't, you know, receive salvation through faith and then you in your own works begin to sanctify your own self and, and, and become free by you working really hard. Like you can pray and fast all you want, but that's not where you're going to find freedom. Freedom comes through faith in Christ Jesus, finding our identity in him, receiving freedom from him, right? So freedom is not achieved through works, it's received through faith or by faith. Second one we said is this. Now, this is so good. If you weren't here last weekend, go back, listen to the podcast, or just let this sink in for a moment, okay? Freedom is not the absence of something, but the presence of someone. See, a lot of times our definition of freedom is that if I can just stop doing this sin, this thing, if I can get this something out of my life, then I'll find freedom. That's not what true freedom is. Freedom is not the absence of something. It's the presence of someone, and that person is the Holy Spirit. For the Bible says, as we've been singing today, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's when the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, lives in our life and dwells in our life. When we receive the Holy Spirit by faith, that's freedom. And then our lives have got to become in alignment with that new identity that we have. The third thing that we said is this, is that freedom is a journey. It's a journey. That's why we said finding freedom. It's like we're on this journey day by day, month by month, year by year, walking out and finding and discovering the freedom that God has for us. So here's the statement that bridges last week because we said it's not something you do. It's something you receive. It's your identity from God. But this week I want to give you some very practical things that you can do to help you in your journey towards freedom. But I don't want to confuse the two. I don't want to seem like I'm dismantling last week by telling you to do some things. But there's a bridge, and here's the bridge. Freedom has been purchased for us by Jesus, period. That's it, okay? Freedom has been purchased for us by Jesus. Ephesians says that. Galatians says that. Freedom has been purchased for us by Jesus. But here's the second part of the statement, the bridge. We have been given the Holy Spirit who helps us. Who? That means it's a person. Who, not it. Who helps us make decisions in line with our freedom. Does that make sense? I'm I'm hoping that you're catching this, that freedom is something that Jesus does for us. We receive that freedom from him, but then the Holy Spirit comes to live on the inside of us, guiding us, directing us, correcting us, showing us the way, giving us prompts in in our life. When we have to make decisions, he prompts us and impresses us to make decisions, to follow his spirit, not our flesh, because the works of the flesh produce death. But when we follow the spirit, it produces fruit in our life. What a beautiful picture. See, it's the Holy Spirit, and we begin to make decisions. And so what I want to do is this, is just kind of just speak a message from this concept, is that as Christians, as followers of Christ, that has the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us, we have both the authority and the responsibility 
to make decisions in our life, with our life, that are in alignment with the freedom we've been given. Does that make sense? That we have authority and responsibility. We don't just drift into freedom. We have to, we have to begin to take intentional steps following the Spirit. Uh, N.T. Wright, Bishop N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, as he's, uh, he was commentating the book of Galatians, he says this, is that we have to get in line. We have to line up with the Spirit. That is, that the Spirit leads us a certain direction, and we get in line with what he wants. And that's all I simply want to do today is I want to unpack some very practical things for you. Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 26, just to kind of support this idea a little bit, says this. Uh, this is speaking about uh, anger, but it says, In your anger, do not sin. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let. What is this saying? This, that you have authority. You have responsibility. Do not let, which means that you can let, right? Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give authority, responsibility. And do not give the who? The devil a foothold. Here, here's in essence what he's saying. Notice, it's a choice how far you will let something go in your life. It's a choice that you have to make. Choose not to go down this road or you are giving the devil a foothold, Paul says. I love uh, Pastor Josh. He talked about a stronghold in week number one. A stronghold simply is a deception. It's a lie in our mind. What happens is, is we give the devil a foothold and he turns it into a stronghold. We give him just a little opening. We give him just a small opening in our life, and then he begins to, to speak lies and deception into that place, and that foothold will become a stronghold, and it will hold you so strongly you can't get out of it. That's what bondage is. That's, that's what being in a stronghold is all about. If the devil can't get a foothold, or if the devil can get a foothold, he'll do his best to make it a stronghold. So the choice for us is this, and I'm going to show you this in Scripture. The choice is, is that we have this responsibility and this authority to, to close off certain areas of our life or to open up areas of our life for the enemy to come in and to create strongholds. That, that's simply it. Maybe you've heard that before. We have openings or we shut those areas of our life so that the enemy can or cannot come into our life and gain a stronghold in us. I want to show you this in, in Scripture. When you begin to look throughout the Old and New Testament, it uses, um, instead of saying foothold, it will use this vernacular, this language of doors and windows left open. It's the craziest thing. I've never seen it before. I used to hear my mom tell me, you shouldn't be watching that because you're opening up a door, a door to the enemy. I'm like, mom, you're crazy. And now I'm reading the Bible. I'm like, mom, you're right. You know, it's like doors and windows. Um, but I, I'm just going to read you a couple right here, and, and we'll read some more later on. But I, I love this one. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul says this. So if you forgive him, he's speaking to a specific uh, issue of forgiveness, unforgiveness, someone that's created offense. He says, if you forgive him, I will forgive him. He says, don't think I'm carrying around a list of personal grudges. The fact is that I'm joining in with your forgiveness as Christ is with us, guiding us. After all, watch this, after all, remember, this is about bitterness, offense, unforgiveness. After all, we don't want to unwittingly give Satan an opening for yet more mischief. We're not oblivious to his sly ways. He says bitterness, offense, all those things, unforgiveness, resentment. That's actually creating an opening for the enemy to come in and to do even more damage in your life. He was like, we're not going to give him an opening. We're not going to give him even a, any area at all for him to creep into our life. I love the way it says it in NIV. Uh, it says, anyone uh, you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, uh, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware 
of his schemes. I love that. Uh, the other day, uh, uh, our family moved into uh, a new house. Our lease ran out, and so we moved into a new house. And you, you know, if you've had to move into a new place, you've had to experience the pain and the frustration, not only of moving, not only of packing, but of unpacking. Amen, church? I need counseling after that. Unpacking and transferring all of your services to, <laughs> yes, to a new house. Now I'm preaching. This is gospel right here, people. Is you got to move your your you got to move your infinity, Xfinity, whatever it's called, your Comcast. You got to move. You got to move ADT. You got to move this stuff. Oh my goodness, it's so frustrating. And the other day, I, I had uh, I had the ADT security people come to our house, and this guy comes in and he says, "I'm going to take you. I'm I'm a I'm an expert in this field," and I said, "Good, because I'm not. That's why we hired you." And uh, he said, "I want to walk you through your house." And uh, we're going to determine what's the best system of security uh, based on this house that you're living in. And so I'm going to show you the vulnerable places in your house. And I'll tell you the exact system that will work the best for you. But the first thing is for, for you to, you need to understand uh, just the different vulnerable places in your house. So we walked through our house and he, he showed me, he was like, these windows right here, uh, a thief will never, a burglar will never break into these windows because they're on the front of your house. There's no coverage uh, with, with trees and stuff like that. People can see in here. They're never going to go there. They're, they're sly and they're slick. They would never do that. He walks me to the, this other place over here, and he goes, now these windows over here, he said, these are problematic because they're covered, and they can slip under, you know, in there at night and come through, and they'll break through. This is, a, this is a weak place right here. This is a vulnerable place. We need to pay special attention here. Then he brought me over to this other door, and he began to explain how they would break into this type of a door. And I'm like, I look at this guy because he's explaining in detail how to rob someone. And I look at him, and I, there's only two conclusions. I'm like, I look at him and I go, either one, um, you are a criminal, and you've been doing this for a long time. Or number two, you have a background in law enforcement. That, that's it. And he laughed, and he said, you're right. He said, I served for about 15 years in law enforcement. And this is what he said. He goes, everything I'm telling you, he said, there's only three or four ways that a criminal is going to break, a thief's going to break into your house. He was like, there's no new tricks. They've been doing the same thing. This whole time, it's the same exact thing. And he said, because it's the same thing, he goes, it's easy for me to be an expert because they have no new tricks. Paul says, you need to be aware. You need to be in the know. You, you need to understand that there are certain schemes. And here's what you know. The devil has no new tricks. He's been doing the same thing for thousands of years. Same tactics, same tricks. He's not creative. He's not at all. He's got the same sly, stupid tricks. And I'm going to show you that there's just a few of them. You, you actually see three big categories or three big doors. We'll use that language. Three big doors that you see. Uh, and I want to just outline them first with this text, and then I'll unpack them a bit more. First John chapter 2, verse 15, uh, the writer says this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, watch this, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything that's in the world. Those three things comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives 
forever. It's always these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. You can take any type of struggle, sin, stronghold, and I promise you we can figure out how they fit underneath these categories. But let me break them down to you for just a moment. I want to unpack this. The lust of the flesh. Here's what that is. That's our passions. It's our passions. It's our feelings, the appetite for pleasure, our cravings, the insatiable pursuit for more pleasure. Uh, there's nothing wrong with pleasure, but when, pre pre when pleasure becomes the preeminent thing, when that's your pursuit, if it's food, if it's alcohol, if it's whatever, you fill, fill in the blank. It, when that becomes a preeminent pursuit, it will begin to control your life. This door is usually, when you look throughout scripture, it's usually related to, to sexual sin, sexual pleasure. Um, it, it's, it's this insatiable desire for sexual pleasure and more, more. Uh, it's the lust of the flesh. The second one is the lust of the eyes. This is our possessions, our possessions. I want more. I want it now. It's like I want more, and I want it right now. It's greed. It's envy. It's this, this desire for more things in our life, like, like what we have is not enough. This breeds discontentment. Nothing is ever enough. We begin to find our identity in our stuff, in our cars, in our clothes, in our house, in our money, in our possessions. It's the lust of the eyes. What we see, we want what, 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 what we see. And we think if I can get that, things will be better in my life. The third one is the pride of life. This is our position. Uh, we feel that we're not positioned right. We naturally like to position ourselves as the smartest person in the room, the most powerful in the room, the most influential in the room, the most affluent in the room, the strongest, the most important. We elevate ourselves above other people. We aren't humble enough to learn from other people. We're not a student. We're an expert. We act like experts, and we're know-it-alls all the time. We always have every answer for everything. Can't you? I can't stand people like that. They just drive me crazy. Am I the only one? Okay, okay, okay. Our... You, you feel like your world rotates and revolves around you. This is the pride of life. It's about position or power. That's really what it is at its base. Uh, I've heard old preachers back in the day uh, say them a different way. They, they say sex, salary, and status. Instead of, instead of, uh, instead of pleasures, uh, pleasure, uh, uh, passions, or passions. What, what was that? I forgot. I already screwed myself up here. What is it? Passions, positions. Gosh. Passions, <laughs> possessions, position. Try saying that 25 times. Sex, salary, status. Here's another one for you. Girls or guys, whatever. Girls, gold, glory. Here's another one. I heard this one one time. The temptation to feel, to have, or to be. I like that one. Or, as one old Pentecostal preacher said, it's the real PMS. Power, money, and sex. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> However you want to say it, the point is, it's a pattern. It's a pattern. I'll show you in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3. Here's, here's just to show you those three. Uh, this was the original sin, the original temptation. Watch this. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, notice the three, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her dumb husband <laughs> who was with her, and he ate it. Let me show you this. Good for food. This is passions. It appeals to our appetite, right? Food is pleasure. Amen from the foodies? Amen. Appeal, this appealed to, <laughs> amen. This, uh, this appeal, some of you are like, I'm getting hungry right now. Hurry this up. <laughs> this appealed to our appetite. This is a natural, think about this. This, is a, this was a natural craving, a natural need, food. What the enemy does is he tries to take natural needs and get you to meet them in illegitimate ways, unnatural ways. That's what he does. Um, th this, is, this, is, this is good for the food. It's passions. It's the temptation to, satis to, to satisfy her own flesh. 
Uh, here's the second one, pleasing to the eye. That's what it said about the fruit. It said pleasing to the eye. This is possessions, right? Remember, lust of the eye. I want what I see. I want what I don't have. It's a shiny apple or avocado, whichever one you prefer. It's shiny. It looks good. It's, it's pleasing to the eye. I want what I see. Here's the third one, desirable for gaining wisdom. That doesn't sound that bad, but here's what that wisdom was. Remember, the enemy said, if you eat this, you'll, you'll gain the knowledge like God. You'll be like God. That's equal. You'll be like him. You'll have the same position, and then you'll share the same power. That's what it was. That was a temptation. Those are the three right there. Uh, even Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Remember when he was tempted uh, by the devil in Matthew chapter 4 in the wilderness. It says this, verse number 3. The tempter came to him, and this is what he said. If you truly are the son of God, tell those stones to become bread. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you truly are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he, God, will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And then he said this, all of this power, all of this I'll give it to you, he said, if you'll just bow down and worship me. Think about these three. Turn stones into bread, food, appetite, passions. It appealed to his appetite. Throw yourself down. This appealed to position. position. Leverage your position as the son of God. Leverage your power. Here's the third one. All this I will give you. Possessions, I'll give it all to you. It was a temptation. By the way, the temptation, I want you to think about this. Those three temptations, eventually, Jesus does a miracle with food, right? Eventually, he does a miracle with food. He multiplies bread and fish. He does a miracle with food. Eventually, he overcomes death. That was one of the temptations. He overcomes death at the cross. And eventually... He gained all the power and authority it was given to him. So the temptation was to accelerate his time before his time. That's a good word. That was for the first two rows. There you go. <laughs> Let me show it. Can I show you one more, one more thing? i got to hurry. There's three. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel, they were always lured away. They were tempted to go astray by only three different gods. It was three primary gods. That would, that would lure them away. The first one was the god of Asherah. Uh, Some places you see Ashtoreth. Uh, this was a goddess, not a god, but a goddess. And you know who she was? She was the goddess of love, the goddess of love. Sexual pleasure was the appeal to, the, to her followers. The worshipers of Asherah had a symbol, and it was an Asherah pole. It represented what you think it would represent for a goddess of sex and love. There you go. They would worship in Asherah's temple how? with prostitutes having sex, sexual pleasure. And this would lure the people of God away from their devotion to him, the God of Asherah, or the goddess of Asherah. The second was the God of Mammon. You know what this was? Possessions. The God of Mammon. This is about money and possessions. Uh, the spirit of Mammon was a spirit of greed and envy and discontentment. It was the temptation to complain about what they had or didn't have. And it was to worry and have anxiety about not having enough. And God always had to bring them back into alignment with himself. When they would get off course, essentially devoting their lives to the God of mammon. The third one was the God of Baal. This was the most powerful 
of the gods and it represented position and power. Baal was depicted as the most powerful god and pictured holding a lightning bolt in his hand as he was the most powerful among all other gods. He had the power over storms, rains, and could even produce crops and provide people with children. But most importantly, he was the most powerful and would win all of the battles. He was preeminent, the powerful one. This is the desire for power and for possessions. I'm telling you, it's, the pattern is all throughout Scripture. So then the question is this. If those are the three main doors, okay, then how do we, how do we shut the door on those things? I wish I had a door on the stage because I could show you this. When you come to faith in Christ, the door is wide open in your life for the enemy to come in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, and to destroy your life. But when you put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, the Bible declares that you've now been freed from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, all of those things. Essentially, God himself slams the door on the devil on your behalf, shuts the door in his face. But here's what we do. We open the door. We, we, we don't just like, oh, God, that's, and we, we don't open it. We usually just, we just crack it a little bit, just a little bit. We give him a foothold. We crack it a little bit, and he just starts to push it open a little bit more. That's what we do. See, so the freedom that you have is, is God has already slammed the door, but, but we always tend to open the door and open the window, so to speak, to allow him to come in. And so practically, I want to give you just a few things. Basically, the anecdotes of those three things in a, in a really fast way, I want to give you those three things that help us practically just shut the door on those things. Turn to your name and say, shut the door. Remember that old song, shut the door, shut the door on the devil, shut the door, shut the devil in the night. Right, is that how it goes? Okay, yeah, there you go. It's pretty close. Get it, get it. Here's the first one. If the first one was, was about pleasure or, or, or passions, a lot of times it's, that, it's, it's sexual pleasure. What I know about that is that that's usually done in, in secret and it's private. You know, for the most part. I mean, we do live in San Francisco and people run down the street naked sometimes. But most of the time, the sexual sins and things, they find themselves private. Pornography, um, different things that we may do privately, uh, adultery privately. It's a private thing. And so how do you shut the door there? Listen, you shut the door with integrity. Integrity, I think, gets a bad rap sometimes. We think that integrity means that you're perfect. No, no, that's wrong. Integrity doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just means that you're honest. If integrity was, was that you're perfect, none of us could ever have integrity. Integrity, it actually comes from this, this word, you know, integer, right? It's a mathematical term. What is that? What is that? Or integer, integer, whatever you say. What is that? What is that? It's a, it's a whole number, right? It's something that is one, that is whole. Integrity is this, is that you are one person all the time. That you are whole. You are, there's, no, there's no duplicity. You're not one way on Sunday at Sozo and another way on Thursday night. You're not one way when you're around your pastor, but another way when you're around your neighbor. You're not one way when you're with your husband or with your wife, but you're another way whenever you're at, uh, at some bar or at some restaurant or at work. There's, dupl- there's not duplicity. There's oneness. There's singleness. You are one. God doesn't call us to be perfect. The one time that it says be perfect, it was, it was a mirror showing you that you can't be perfect. That's what that was. But what God calls us to is to be honest and to be one. If you struggle with a certain sin, it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect. It just means that someone needs to know you fully. That is what integrity is. I have things that I still struggle with, but I can tell you what, I have someone that knows everything about me. 
someone. You, that's what integrity is. It's not that you're perfect, but it's that you're honest. Uh, there, was, there was this uh, thing I read years ago about pottery that uh, said that, that it comes from this, that integrity comes from this Latin word. I forget what the Latin word was, but it means without wax. And these, uh, at these, these potter shops, people would, would go to buy these beautiful pieces of pottery, and they would buy it at a high price. But what they find out is that if certain pieces of pottery were heated up, they'd fall apart, revealing that there was really, there was a crack in it somewhere, but wax had covered it, and they'd taken the different pieces, how it was broken, and just pieced it back together and covered it with wax. And so what these potters started doing is they would put a seal on the bottom of their, their piece of pottery, and that seal would actually have a Latin phrase that meant without wax, meaning that this piece of pottery, pottery that you're paying for at a high price, it actually is what I'm claiming it is. It is one piece. It's without wax. And I love that picture because... Because God wants us to be, not, not that we're perfect, but that we can be able to say, I am one. I am one piece. I'm one way in front of my wife and one way in front of my kids. And one, No, I'm the same. I'm not different around different people. I am one. I have integrity. Integrity shuts the door um, on the enemy in your life. Practically, what does that mean? I, I think it's this. I think it's finding a group of people that you can do life with, and eventually you can trust them so much knowing that they love you, knowing that they will never judge you, you get to some point where maybe it's a group, two or three people, maybe it's just one person, where you get to the point where you know they love you, and you know they're not going to judge you, and you can look at them in their eyes and say, I have something I need to tell you. And you can just take off that mask, and you say, I'm, I'm dealing with this. And I don't, I don't want this in my life anymore. And if they really love you and they really care for you, you know what they're going to do? They're going to lean in. And they're going to wrap their arms around you. They're going to love you in spite of your brokenness. They're going to pray with you. They're going to help you walk out that freedom process. But I'll tell you what's going to happen. You will, you will know such a freedom in just taking the mask off. Like, like not even just getting the thing or things out of your life, but just in taking the mask off and finally being fully known. That is where freedom actually begins, in that place and in that space right there. It's integrity. Uh, practically, I'd love to encourage you. We're starting a new season of, of small groups. That's a great place to start. You, I'm not telling you to go first week into a small group and like, boom, I'm struggling with this. Like, they're probably going to be like, whoa, so, TMI, a little too much, my brother. But just, just, just take time and build relationship. It's a journey. And eventually, build that, that trust and you can share. Um, I'll hurry and skip down to this second one here. Second one is shut the door on that second one, which was possessions. How do you do it? You shut it with generosity. I, I, um, I'm sharing this with you not as a pastor, uh, you know, that's, I get it. Let me, let me figure out how to say this as raw and real as I can. There are so many terrible pastors and preachers that manipulate people uh, for their resources and their money, and they preach uh, wealth, health, prosperity, all those things, selling stuff on TV, it's a shame. I, I want to throw up when I look at some of the things that I see on, on TV that are people acting like they truly love people, and they don't. They love themselves, and they're all about themselves. And so I want you to hear me. I get that. And, and when people, when pastors and people in ministry talk about money and possessions and all that stuff, automatically, because we have seen for so long people abuse this topic, it, it, you can kind of just like go like this. And so I want you to hear my heart. I'm being as real as I possibly can. This is not something I want from you. It's something I want for you. Because I know the power of it in my own life. 
Um, as I think about how self-centered I was, when I came to faith in Christ, I was, everything was about me. And I remember my youth pastor telling me, you know what, your whole world revolves around you. And it was like, it, it hurt when he said it. And I was like, well, how do I fix that? And he goes, stop making everything about you and start just being generous to people. Just start buying people stuff. Just start giving. I was like, I'm 18 and I have a bag of Fritos. That's all I own. Like, he's like, well, give away your Fritos, you know, like just. And I'm telling you this, like if you, if you deal with self-centeredness, greed, envy, discontentment, here's what you need to do. Start giving things away. Just be generous. Live a generous life. I'm telling you, generosity will begin to heal your heart. God will use generosity to bring healing to, to a greedy, stingy, self-centered, envious heart. That's just how he does it. Uh, for my wife and I, one of the things that we did, and again, this is just, this could be, you can think it's right or wrong or whatever, but this is for us. We decided that we were going to put God first in our finances Early on, this is actually before we got married, we heard people talk about tithe forever. And I always kind of I always kind of got turned off by that because I thought people teach that that tithe is a law. And if you don't do it, you're curse, 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 and God's gonna be mad, mad, mad. I'm like, really? Is God that type of a God that if I don't pay him off on Sunday, that he's gonna be upset with me? I'm like, that's not a loving father. But I begin to discover that it's not about a law. It's about a principle of putting God first. And so what I did is I said, you know what? I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's wrong. But I'm going to start taking my very best and the first of my finances and giving it into the kingdom of God to make a difference in other people's lives. Not just spending my money on me. But putting God first, honoring God with the tithe. With tithe simply means 10%. It's just the first, the best, the 10% from your income. Giving that through the local church to build the kingdom of God. And I made a decision to do that. I don't even miss it now. I don't even think about it now. I, I, it, it doesn't even bother me. But listen to me. Listen to me. Let, let, let me hurry. Don't clap. Just, just clap at the very end. For me, it's not like, well, you got to tire. The guy's going to be mad. It's like, I don't have to. I get to. And it's not my, my ceiling for giving. That's the floor. That's the foundation. I want to live a generous life over and above. I want my generosity. I want to grow. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 8. Excel. Grow in this grace of giving. Grow in giving. Listen, the more you grow in generosity, whether it be tithing, putting God first, or just being generous to the people at work, show up tomorrow, or if you don't work tomorrow, Tuesday, with just some donuts. Just be generous. Show up with coffee, something. Just give your life away and watch how God will use that to shut the door on the enemy in your life. Amen? Last one. Bang it up here. I'm over on time. I'm so sorry. Oh, let me, can I just read you this as they're coming up? Genesis chapter 4. I'll just hurry with it. Look at this. This is about giving God your first and your best. Later... Eve gave birth to her son Abel. Remember Cain and Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain, kept, uh, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits. Here's what in the course of time means. When he felt like it. When he felt like giving to God, that's when he gave. In the course of time. When he felt like it, it says he brought some, not the best, not the first, brought some of his first fruits, uh, or some of his fruits uh, of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions of uh, from some of the firstborn of his flock. So he brought the, the fat portions is the best and the first of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, uh, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very, watch this, Cain became very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Like, why are you upset? Like, you're the one that didn't put me first. You're the one that was not generous. You're the one that did, 
you were just thinking about yourself and giving me kind of your leftovers. And he says, if, so he's giving him a choice, authority and responsibility to shut the door. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. I'm telling you, whenever I just read these things, it is, it is so obvious to me that whenever we live generously and we give our best to God and to people, like don't, don't, say, don't, don't say you're generous if you go through your closet and just give your worst stuff. I just did that the other day and I thought, I gave a buddy of mine like all my stuff that I don't wear anymore. Like that's not real generosity. That's me just kind of clean, cleaning out my closet. I, I gave a friend a grill and I started the other day and I started to give him my old grill and buy myself a new grill. That was just a good spot to laugh. <laughs> and I, I started, I, start, I was like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a new grill, I'm gonna give him my old grill. And then I thought, that's not generous. I, it's still about me. Yeah, I'm still making it about me. So I would just encourage you uh, to be generous. Here's, here's the last one. Didn't I have one more? I'll fly through this last one. I won't even give you all the scriptures. They'll put them on social media. Here it is. Shut the door on pride, position, all that stuff, power with humility. That's really simple. Just be humble. Pray this prayer as often as you can. Like John said, Jesus must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Jesus must become greater and greater. I must become. When you begin to live your life like that, saying, God, may I decrease and may Jesus increase in my life, in my marriage, in my family. You begin to shut the door on the enemy in your life. It's one of the most powerful things you can do. I'll finish with this. I was reading the other day about, uh, they said whenever Rome would go uh, to battle, that if they won or when they would win, uh, that the, mil the military general that led the victory, they would put him in a chariot. I think it was even in, C in, in Caesar's chariot. Um, they'd put him in there and they'd do a procession through the city um, and they would celebrate him. They would honor him. They would start shouting his praises, singing his praises. They would throw wreaths at him, uh, the beautiful wreaths that, uh, that the Romans would put together. And it would be this glorious moment of people shouting his praises. However, Caesar knew that that's gonna get to his head. So here's what they did. They would put a slave in the chariot with him leaning over in, into his ear, whispering as the crowds are shouting his praise, the slave was in his ear saying, your glory is fading. You are only human. Your glory is fading. You are only human. Just a reminder. You know, I thought of that because I do hate sin and I think sin has no place in our life. Satan has no place in our life. However, one of the things that I've discovered with my own weakness and struggles in my life is that they kind of act like that slave in the chariot with me, reminding me when I think I'm somebody and I'm something, I'm some big bad preacher or pastor, or I'm this, that, and I'm cool, I'm this. It's like my weakness reminds me that I'm only human and that I need Jesus. And so listen, I'm not telling you to glory in your sin, but allow your weakness to simply remind you to posture yourself in humility under the cross and say, Jesus, I need you. Amen. Come on, why don't you bow your heads with me? I want to pray. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for today. God, I thank you that you've been speaking to people's hearts. And God, I just worship you right now in this moment. And I thank you that you have done a freedom work in people's hearts. This collection that you've been speaking to us, been speaking to me about areas I need to close the door in, in, in my life from the enemy. And so God, I know you've been speaking to other people. And so God, I thank you for that. 
Thanks for listening. Join us each week on the podcast or live in San Francisco, California. Keep up with life at Sozo Church by following at Sozo Church SF on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a great day.